think it's really important that patients who may be listening to this, the one thing I can tell you from having been a caregiver as well as being a physician who treats the illness, stay engaged, don't give up, ask a lot of questions, uh, and, and really do your best to be an active participant in your care. That's Craig describing his professional and personal experience with lung disease. Welcome to Journeys Through Pulmonary Fibrosis, a podcast by Boehringer Ingelheim. This is the first episode in our series. In each episode, we give a voice to a guest from the pulmonary fibrosis community who will share their experiences and stories with us. Together, we'll hear heartwarming and courageous stories from the people with this lung condition, their loved ones, and the doctors working tirelessly to support them. I'm Daniel Sinner, and I'll be your guide as we begin our journey through pulmonary fibrosis. Our guest today is Dr. Craig Conoscenti. He's a pulmonologist from Connecticut in the United States. He's currently a medical expert in interstitial lung disease on the clinical development and medical affairs team at Boehringer Ingelheim, a global pharmaceutical company. Arguably, his journey through pulmonary fibrosis began from birth. His father was a pulmonary rehabilitation specialist, so it's clear where his passion for helping patients with respiratory diseases came from. Craig went on to become a pulmonologist after completing a pulmonary critical care fellowship at Norwalk Hospital and Yale University School of Medicine. But Craig's journey through pulmonary fibrosis took a turn after his father went on to develop the rare respiratory disease, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, also known as IPF. Craig, thank you for joining us today to share your journey through pulmonary fibrosis. Good morning and thank you for having me. I wanted to start off by asking, for those listeners who haven't heard of pulmonary fibrosis, what does it refer to? So pulmonary fibrosis refers to a hardening of lung tissue. The lungs are made up of millions of air sacs that lay side by side with a very small space between them. This allows for transfer of oxygen and carbon dioxide in and out of the lungs. In pulmonary fibrosis, this space between the air sacs becomes very hard and thick and it hinders the ability to transfer gases. Therefore, the oxygen that you can take in while you're breathing is very limited, and this causes shortness of breath. Can you give us a few examples of the different diseases that pulmonary fibrosis can occur in? So there are several forms of pulmonary fibrosis. Uh, One type occurs in the circumstance where there is no identifiable underlying cause. This is called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF. It can also occur with several different types of underlying illnesses, such as connective tissue diseases, where rheumatoid arthritis and systemic sclerosis are good examples. It can occur secondary to exposures, exposures to things in the environment or in the workplace, uh, or even secondary to exposures from uh, different types of work, workplace-related activities. Uh, Also, there's an instance where you can see pulmonary fibrosis occur uh, where it has the identification of very uh, different types of underlying illnesses, but not one in particular is found to be the cause. And this is called unclassifiable uh, pulmonary fibrosis. And then additionally, there are some other less specific uh, types of illnesses that can occur uh, that relate to ILD and pulmonary fibrosis as well. If we stick with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, can you take us through the history of discovering and defining it? 
So when I first started uh, after my fellow, actually during my fellowship, um, back in the uh, mid-1980s, uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF, was not something which uh, we were aware of. IPF is a type of interstitial lung disease, as it's called. And back in the mid-80s, we identified people that developed this pulmonary fibrosis, but it was unclear as to why they developed it. And in those days, we didn't really have anything to treat patients with uh, other than supportive care. But research began and became a bit more common in the 90s. We still didn't have the term idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. It went under many different terms as we watched and uh, and looked at different types of research coming from different parts of the world. It wasn't until the late 90s and when it really became apparent um, that this was truly pulmonary fibrosis of unknown origin. And that's when the term idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis became uh, the commonplace term used for this illness. That's quite an incredible journey. It was during this time that your dad was diagnosed with um, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. How did that change your experience and your journey over those 20 or so years? So it was an, an interesting period of time because it was right in the middle of when I was not only doing research, uh, looking at idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis uh, amongst other types of pulmonary fibrosis as well, um, but I was also treating patients since it was the concentration of my practice. Uh, so that was when my dad was diagnosed with, uh, with IPF, and it was uh, somewhat surreal to actually have that occur. Uh, as you can imagine, it's somewhat more difficult when you actually know the disease as well as I did um, and understood what the likely outcome was as well as um, how difficult the journey could potentially be. Uh, so it was, it was a very difficult circumstance to, to have to be able to uh, not only understand, but to help him get through. That really sounds incredibly difficult to be going through at a time when you knew so much about the disease, at a time when at the beginning your father may not have known. Did it fuel your passion to continue helping patients um, like your father? It absolutely did. I, you know, I think that in a circumstance where you're already uh, spending uh, such a significant period of time, um, not only studying, but treating patients with uh, pulmonary fibrosis, it gives you a different outlook on things. It gives you a better understanding. When you were talking to your dad about the disease at the time, what was the experience like for you as a son and a pulmonologist discussing how he was feeling. So it was somewhat of an interesting circumstance uh, because my dad was a respiratory therapist. So our discussions were, uh, for the most part, um, very down to earth and fully understanding that uh, the likelihood of him having an early mortality was very high. So we were actually able to have some fairly in-depth discussions about that. Um, that, of course, is not always what's going to occur for any individual person who has a family member that has this illness, uh, because there may not be as much of an understanding uh, about the illness as my dad had. So um, we were able to have some very frank and difficult talks, especially as he was beginning to worsen. Um, in, in the 90s, when he developed the illness, the average person's lifespan 
uh, was somewhere in the range of two to five years. Um, my dad actually made it for two and a half years after his diagnosis before he died. Um, so he was quite aware of, of what the expectations were. But we had great conversations about it, and it didn't actually change his um, activity level very much. He was determined to, to do everything that he wanted to do, even though it meant he had to have oxygen with him all the time, and even though it meant he may not be able to do things necessarily at the same pace as he always did, um, or even with the same ability to push himself. But it didn't stop him. He continued to do all the things he enjoyed doing. I'm so sorry that you went through that and you were put in a situation where you were having to have such honesty based on what you knew about the disease and also being there to be positive and supportive to your father. It must have been so difficult, but it also sounds like it paved the way for a really raw and honest conversation. When you look back and you think about what fuels your passion every day to make a difference for patients. Is there a moment or an experience with your father or a piece of advice that he gave you that you look back on fondly for advice and it gives you that that passion and that fuel to continue? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's one thing that, that he always said, which uh, stayed in my mind and actually still remains there. And he was always one of the people that always saw the bright side of things. You had a unique experience which helped fuel your passion to investigate and continue researching. And I think a lot of people won't have had that experience, that personal experience that keeps them going. So for the the doctors who haven't had this experience, what would you say to them as a pulmonologist and as a um, researcher, when they have a patient um, present to them for the first time, and they don't have that experience of what it's like to have a loved one live with pulmonary fibrosis, if you were to give them a piece of advice or a perspective on which to see the patient in front of them, what would you say to them? So I think it all starts with compassion. Uh, I think when you're dealing with patients who have a terminal illness, um, you need to have compassion and understanding of, of what that patient is going through. And I think that's a, a, a true characteristic of uh, physicians who treat the illness, uh, that there's always that level of compassion for the patient. It seems it's that trio of empathy, care, and humanity, which shaped your experience. For patients that may be listening to um, this podcast, people with pulmonary fibrosis, what advice would you give to them, would your father have given to them, about really tapping into what you said your dad had, that, that bright side, that sheer determination to continue, even on oxygen, and determined to do exactly what it was that he wanted to do. So I think that that's actually uh, the key component of this: is just never give up. Uh, you know, don't don't let uh, don't let things pass you by. Um, take advantage of of everything and do it in the best way you possibly can, even though you may not 
necessarily be able to do it um, exactly the way you would have liked to. Uh, you need to keep that experience and, and don't let it get the best of you. What about on those really difficult days? You know, having spoken to patients before, there are days where you don't have the energy. It's particularly difficult to breathe or just from a mental health perspective, you're not feeling up to it. Where did your dad tap into that energy to keep going? So I think it's the the understanding that there's going to be some days that you just can't do it. Um, I think that's true for all of us, even even without having pulmonary fibrosis. Uh, Someone who's perfectly healthy or someone who has another illness, there are certain days that you just don't feel right. Um, and you, you can't do what you'd like to do. And I think the key is to be able to understand that those days will occur. And you may not be able to do something that you truly wanted to do today, but it can't stop you from doing it tomorrow. Uh, I think you have to pay attention to how you feel, pay attention to what may be occurring uh, that might be new. I mean, let's remember people with pulmonary fibrosis can develop, you know, common everyday ailments as well. Um, And, you know, there may be things which are influencing your ability to do something today, but it shouldn't stop you from trying to do it tomorrow. And I think if somebody has that type of an outlook and they're aware of, of their own feelings and are able to say, you know, something's going on today. I'm not feeling quite right. And maybe that's the point in time where they need to speak to their pulmonologist or, uh, or to the nurse practitioner that, that works with them um, and, and be able to explain, I just don't feel right. I can't do what I want to do today. But at the point in time where the next day is better or the problem has been resolved, don't look back and say, I couldn't do something I wanted to do. Look forward and do it. What about as a son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter of someone who is living with pulmonary fibrosis? As a carer or a part of a support network, what does that feel like and what keeps you going? Yeah, I think, I think that's actually a very important piece of this because often the caregiver is forgotten about. And the caregiver sometimes is in a circumstance where you're a spouse um, and, you know, you are living with that person every day. And you also understand how serious the illness is and you understand that, you know, it's a terminal disease. And I think it's, it's very important because the caregiver has two problems to deal with. Um, one is to realize that you're the person responsible for helping um, your spouse You're the person who's responsible for giving them a reason to want to do things, uh, to want to um, live life as best as they can with their illness. But at the other other end of that, that's a very hard job. And there isn't a lot out there um, to help the spouse or to help the the spouse caregiver, I guess is the best word. Uh, So I think that's the first group to look at. Uh, there, There needs to be an understanding that the caregiver who happens to be a spouse is really doing two jobs, trying to take care of themselves as well as trying to support and take care of, of the patient. And then there's the, the children or grandchildren. Um, 
it's a little bit different because you're not necessarily with that person every day. But remember, they also know terminal disease. And that's something that, you know, can truly be problematic for a child or a grandchild to be able to accept. But yet they have to be able to be there for the patient. So they have to still have a smile on their face. They still have to have that same drive of saying, okay, so we won't do this today, but maybe we'll do it tomorrow or the next day. So I think that the caregivers play such an important role, um, both from a supportive uh, nature, as well as from truly being a caregiver um, and helping do things. And remember some of these patients for periods of time may not actually be able to to do all of the things every day that they need to do to take care of themselves and they need help doing that. Um, So I think the caregivers are often the forgotten group of of people. And I'm, I'm truly happy to see that in the current environment, there are a multitude of different places where the caregiver actually can get some help for themselves um, and get some support for themselves. So I think the caregivers are, are truly an important component of uh, the life of patients with pulmonary fibrosis. Obviously, you had a personal experience being a caregiver, and I presume also so did your mum. What did that experience feel like for people who haven't got an experience of being a caregiver? I think it's best to, to think about it as the unknown. So I think, you know, for me, it was not knowing what the next day would bring, but fully being aware of what potentially the next day could bring. Um, So just never really knowing when there would be an event that, you know, would either lead to a worsening of disease or or lead to his death. Um, From the perspective of my mom, she wasn't, obviously, she wasn't as well-read um, pulmonary fibrosis as I was, um, but she went to every physician visit with him. Um, she listened to everything his physician said. She understood, um, you know, what what was going to occur. She also understood there was no way to predict it. So I think um, it was, it's somewhat more difficult when you really don't have a very good understanding of the disease itself, um, but yet you know that on any given day, things can change very quickly. Uh, and I think that makes it very hard, especially since, as I mentioned a minute ago, you know, you're, you're there all the time. Um, a spouse as the caregiver is somebody who's there 24 hours a day uh, and is living through it with the patient. And that's a very, very hard job. It sounds really tough. And I can only imagine that delicate balance between accepting the situation that your spouse or loved one's in to balance that with the determination to help them keep going, to care for yourself and care for them, and then also to have that determination to keep yourself and them going, to be optimistic for the next day in, in face of the unknown. What was it that you and your mum did that really made a difference to the day or week that your dad had that other caregivers can think about when they're facing the unknown? 
So I think, um, so with, with my dad, it was actually a very interesting period of time because um, he had just retired. He was very young. He was just turned 65. Um, and uh, my parents decided to spend uh, the spring, the summer, and early fall living on a boat. So they would spend their winters in a home in New Jersey, but then they would spend their uh, spring and summer uh, on a boat. So they did a lot. I mean, they lived on the boat in a community where surrounding them, all of the boats were filled with people that lived there. So it was something every day, never stopped my dad from doing it. I mean, he would have his oxygen and they would go out to dinner. They would be out on the water for the day. Um, they would have small parties at the marina where they, they were living on the boat. Um, and this occurred every day. I mean, it, it got to the point that um, unless you saw his oxygen and unless you noticed that he moved a little bit slower, uh, you wouldn't really know there was much going on. And there was no leading up to my dad dying. And as a matter of fact, um, the evening before this occurred, um, they were out with a group of friends who were living in the same arena as them. And they were having a great night at, out to dinner at a restaurant and came back and, you know, sitting around on their boats all talking. Uh, and he didn't wake up the next morning. So there was no, there was no leading up to this in his case. Um, in his case, it was uh, an event that occurred after having a uh, you know, great night the night before. Obviously, that's not always going to be the case. Um, in some instances, you know, the, the caregiver, in this case, the spouse, is going to be watching somebody who over a few days or a few weeks may be worsening, um, may end up in a circumstance where um, they truly are not able to do anything, where they're, you know, potentially even in the hospital. So not everyone has the ability to have something occur um, very quickly and spontaneously and not have a, a lead up to it in other circumstances. Uh, it could be a long several weeks, and that's really difficult uh, for the person who's the caregiver uh, because you still have to be able to uh, have a smile on your face and be able to try as best as possible to maintain some normal activity, but realizing that things are going downhill quickly. And I think, you know, for the caregiver, they often, I think, don't realize that the patient probably knows that as well. But those are very hard times. So it can occur in ways that it occurred with my dad where things were going fine and he was gradually worsening. There was no obvious, um, very severe period of time, you know, prior to him dying. For others, it can be a very quick worsening um, with uh, significant symptoms uh, and, and obvious in an obvious downhill course. So it can go either way. When thinking about someone who has this gradual loss of lung capacity, what does that mean practically? How does that affect the day-to-day? -day? So a lot of it depends upon the patient. Um, I think it's truly the responsibility of the physician to make sure that the patient fully understands that they need to communicate about how they're feeling. Um, if they feel that something's worsening, they need to communicate that to their physician. Um, in some instances, it may not actually be a true worsening of the disease, but it may be some surrounding circumstances that might be able to be adapted. Um, 
But the key feature is that um, there's a communication between patient and physician. And that as the, the patient begins to notice things are changing, if you make your physician aware of that, um, there's a chance that you can begin to do things which may actually improve uh, the circumstances that are making them feel worse. That gradual type of, of worsening uh, is something which can occur in any patient with pulmonary fibrosis, you know, patient with IPF. And in some instances, if you can communicate that early on when it seems like a gradual worsening, you may be able to avoid a point in time where it becomes a very severe worsening. Uh, and I think that's the key piece is that there needs to be good communication between patient and physician. The patient can't feel as though they're bothering their physician. If, if they're noticing things are beginning to worsen, you need to communicate that so that you can do your best to be able to identify what may be causing that and be able to potentially impact it enough so that there is no severe worsening. I'm imagining the build-up to an appointment and thinking about how we can improve the communication between patients and their doctor. And for some, the anxiety will be building as they get to the next appointment, maybe knowing that they're going to be having certain tests, perhaps. How can patients best prepare for those type of conversations if they're feeling really overwhelmed in the lead up to an appointment? So I think it's, it's different for each patient. Um, for myself and, and I think for, for many physicians, um, you always tell the patient, write down your questions. Um, you always try and explain to the patient that um, if they're not able to, to come in and feel comfortable being able to ask you um, everything that they feel is important to them, then that visit isn't going to be a very good visit. So the majority of time, the patient will come in with um, a caregiver. Typically, um, it's a spouse and sometimes it's a, it's a child um, of theirs. I always used to say, um, write down your questions, no matter how foolish you think they are, write them down. Um, things that you're feeling that you're not sure why you're feeling them, write those down. And also the person coming with you, um, especially if it's a spouse who's living with that person every day, they're going to have questions as well. And they're going to notice things that the patient may not actually pick up on. Uh, you know, I think that the patient-physician relationship is a two-sided relationship. Both parties have, have to be active participants. So the patient needs to be able to come in and give you an understanding of what's occurring, what's different, um, what's happening in their day-to-day -day life. The physician needs to be able to pick up on those cues and be able to um, work to find a way to try and either change what's occurring with the patient or be able to make it more tolerable for the patient. Um, it's an, there are two active participants. It's truly a two-sided team. Everybody has a role they play in that relationship, both patient and physician. And I think for the physician, when you have a patient who comes in who's not actively engaging with you, it's very difficult and vice versa. I think when a patient who's very engaged goes in and they have a physician who's not quite as engaged as they are, 
or who, you know, isn't really putting in the same amount of time that the patient is into at least attempting to change what's, what's beginning to happen, um, there's a problem. But I'm really happy to say that I think in the world of pulmonary fibrosis, what you'll see are very active patient-physician relationships, engaged patients, engaged physician, even engaged caregiver, so that it is a true team. Um, often in medicine, you talk about a team and you think about you know the physicians, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, but there's another team. And the other team is the patient, the physician, and the caregiver. And that's an important team as well. And I think when you have um, everyone engaged in the process, it's always a better outcome for the patient. There are two words that really stood out for me from what you've just said about improving the patient-doctor dialogue, making the patient feel confident and comfortable. And it was engaged and empowered. And it feels like both of those are so important to giving patients the confidence and also the determination to persevere to live their best possible life. And so from your personal experience, when did you and when did your dad feel the most empowered and engaged during your journeys? So I think it was right from the beginning. Um, again, the circumstances a little different because my dad, having been a respiratory therapist, had a lot of understanding of what was occurring as well as what was likely to occur. Um, but I don't think that it would be different even if he didn't have that full understanding. He had the personality that he was going to beat this thing. And he was engaged in making sure that um, he interacted with his physician on a very honest and true basis. Um, I felt engaged, obviously, from the beginning because um, I wasn't a part of this team as, as a, a physician. I was part of the team as his son, and my mom was part of the team. Um, I think engagement in our circumstance took place right from the start because my father's outlook on things, he wasn't going to let this get the best of him. And he knew that the end point was death for him. But he also knew that he wasn't going to change his lifestyle um, in any way up until that point. He may alter it a bit, and he did alter it a bit. But he was engaged from the start because this was not going to get the best of him. And I think that's a really important component for a patient. So I think it's really important that the patient, right from the start, is engaged and that they don't begin to feel sorry for themselves. And it's very hard not to. I mean, none of us have the ability to put ourselves in their shoes. Um, but I think it's really important that patients who may be listening to this, the one thing I can tell you from having been a caregiver as well as being a physician who treats the illness, stay engaged, don't give up, ask a lot of questions, uh, and, and really do your best to be an active participant in your care. Looking back on our conversation today is really centered around two key characteristics. The determination as a researcher to persevere, the determination as a patient, your father, to persevere and to be determined, and empathy and compassion 
as a caregiver, as a patient for themselves to accept when days might be more difficult, but the next day might be a lot better. And also the empathy and compassion as a doctor treating someone living with pulmonary fibrosis to have the best conversation at each of the times when they have an appointment with a patient. How would you summarize your journey supporting people with pulmonary fibrosis? I think it's the best journey that anybody can have. I, I find that every day the work that, that we do um, touches patients and caregivers uh, in a way that we often don't necessarily understand unless you've had the experience that I've had. Um, sometimes we see small gains as being just that, small gains. And we often look for the, the big gain. Um, when you're the patient or you're the caregiver, small gains are really important. And I find that every day um, as we go through the, the journey of investigating the world of pulmonary fibrosis, um, I find that it's very important that the work we're doing doesn't stop because what seems like um, very small outcomes are often very big things for patients. Um, and we're in a position both in the pharmaceutical industry as, as I'm in now with my position on the team at Berger Ingelheim to decide where the physician is in an exam room with their patient. There is is it a whole new world in the delivery of supplemental oxygen that doesn't mean a patient needs to necessarily carry a tank of oxygen behind them. So the days of being somewhat limited in what you could do because you are on supplemental oxygen gets better and better every day. New things come out. So it's an exciting time um, to be a part of a, a group of people um, that looks into uh, not only treatment for this disease, but also ways to make the patient's day-to-day -day life better. And it's an exciting time for the patients because they have something that can be offered to them to potentially help them get through um, an illness, which in the past, there was really nothing you had to offer to a patient. I think that's the perfect place to end this very honest, but also optimistic conversation and um, story and journey that you've shared um, with us today, Craig. Thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us today. You're welcome. Next time, I'll be joined by Jim, who has rheumatoid arthritis associated interstitial lung disease, and he'll be taking us through his experience with a delayed diagnosis and his own journey through pulmonary fibrosis. To always get the latest episode, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts.